This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. So I'm very excited about the show and about my guest. I'm calling this week's show From Gaga to Godfather, and I'll explain that later. But first, I want to welcome journalist, critic, and author John Bleasdell back with me. Thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you, Christina. It's a real pleasure to be with you again. How are you? I'm good. I'm, uh, uh, we're going through another lockdown here over in Italy and uh, we're just hopefully we'll come out of it the other side of Easter. But, uh, but generally speaking, the, the sun is out, spring is here and I'm very optimistic. That's great. So yeah, for the listeners who didn't catch us last time, you're an, a British critic, but you, you're based out of Italy. So you have the best of all, all worlds. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I live a dream life. La Dolce Vita. <laughs> Last time we talked, actually, we had a super fun show where we talked about Tenet. In preparing to talk to you again, I was realizing that that was like right at the beginning of the pandemic for films and we didn't know anything that was going to happen. What are your thoughts about how the whole Tenet thing panned out? I, weirdly enough, I'm reading Tom Schoen's book about Nolan uh, that has just come out and actually includes a chapter on Tenet. And um, I, it made me realize that it's really, I wonder if it's really put a, a spoke, a, a stick in his spokes a little bit, because his career has been one giant movie after another and with huge successes. And then Tenet, for, for reasons beyond his control, didn't really hit. And I think there was also a backlash against the idea that he was trying to encourage people to go to cinemas in the middle of a pandemic. And I just wonder if that will tarnish a little bit his reputation. There'll be some, there'll be a feeling, I think, for his next movie that he'll have to sort of come back from from Tenet. Although, you know, I think you you enjoyed it very much as, as did I. I did. But I don't feel it's really been this soaring, unambiguous triumph. No, no, it never really became that. You know, it's very easy with retrospect to see what you should have done in terms of release strategies. Um, uh, nobody could have really predicted the way it was going to go. Um, and I, and in other circumstances, I'm totally with him on the primacy of the theatrical experience. And, mm-hmm. and I, I particularly love his, you know, his commitment to, move, to film as a physical uh, medium and to sort of doing things in camera as much as possible. All of those things, I think, are, are really healthy to, to have somebody championing that. And it really helps. It's probably one of the most successful directors of original material that uh, exists in Hollywood at the moment. Anyway, what we're going to do is a pop culture confidential pincer move here. <laughs> we're going to look into the future this time, but not at upcoming films in general. Um, the idea is that when I started looking at what's coming up and what was rumored and what's filming now during the pandemic, It's probably a coincidence, but still interesting to talk. I found sort of a theme in that. It's big stars doing big names, like Anna de Armas is doing Norma Jean, Marilyn. Oscar Isaacs is going to play Francis Ford Coppola. Lady Gaga will be Lady Gucci. 
they're big directors. Lots of the movies are about the industry and pop culture figures being dissected in art house ways. And I thought we'd take a little bit deeper dive into those that are coming up and then maybe share a few of our personal favorites in this genre or whatever kind of side genre of biopics this may be. I don't know if, are you a biopic guy? Yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, I definitely do. There are definitely some really good examples out there. I think they are, of all genres, the hardest to do really well. I think it's very easy to slip into a uh, a cliched trajectory of, of, you know, rise, early promise, excess, and then fall, and then redemption. You know, I mean, it, mm-hmm. they sort of write themselves a lot of the time. And, um, and they also do tend to clean the edges off fairly controversial figures at times so that you don't... Uh, so that they fit into that template. So I, the, the ones that I really like are, are, are films that, that sort of make that into a problem, make that into part of the subject. But yeah, no, it's not a, uh, it's, it's a genre that um, I definitely um, have a few of my sort of top 100 films are probably biopics, you know, not necessarily top 10. Oh, no, actually, no, definitely one of my top 10 films is a biopic, so. Well, we'll get into some of those personal preference later, but let's start with two of the movies that we're seeing a lot of sort of behind the scenes pictures that are coming up. The first one is Kristen Stewart as Diana, Princess of Wales. It's directed by Pablo Lorraine, who did Neruda, who did one of my favorite biopics about Jackie Kennedy. I adored it. Many hated it. Um, What's your take? Why does he first do Jackie and then Princess Diana? That, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think because I think um, I think in many ways Diana sort of overtook Jackie Onassis, uh, Jackie Kennedy, as she was at the time that the the film is based on, um, as as a predom- a prominent sort of female icon in terms of you know fashion and style, but also in terms of sort of having an evolution. I mean, I think I can see why. Um, and also, you know, geographically, you're going from an American, an American, the Camelot to to a sort of older version of the same thing, which is the the House of Windsor. So I can see that there's a there's a line between uh, that draw, you can tie between the two. Um, I really liked Neruda as well, but I feel that is much sort of closer to his sort of geographical roots. As he's from Chile, right? Uh, yes, I think so. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, I'm a bit. From a personal point of view, obviously I'm British and I grew up. I was uh, I grew up during the royal wedding and all that that period. I remember it very well. For me, watching The Crown is like watching the news, you know, <laughs> behind the scenes of the news when I was a kid. And we um, and I remember. I also remember that um, a lot of non-British people don't realize this, but there's a real ambivalence towards the in, towards the royal family in England, uh, especially outside of London. Once you get north of, you know, if you go up the M6 a little bit, uh, people were very, very critical. And that in some ways uh, explains that sort of tabloid approach mm-hmm. to the, because we do want to sort of pull them down off their pedestal pedestals as well. And, you know, they are sort of considered public employees because, you know, it was our taxes which paid for them. So behind all the tinsel and the glitter and the glamour and the queen, princess of hearts and all that sort of stuff, 
there is a sort of underlying resentment that, uh, that sometimes peeps through. Not to mention Meghan and Harry's Oprah interview, um, where we're reminded, of course, of his mother and, and the media, you know, everything she had to go through. There's the crown. What do you think of Kristen Stewart as Princess Diana? Um, I mean, I worry a little bit because I, I, I really like Kristen Stewart. I find her, uh, you know, I, I, I watched the Twilight films over one Christmas, you know, back to back with my daughters. And I had a, I, had a, I really enjoyed them. And I think she's made some interesting choices since then. And she's made some really, I think she's won over a lot of people. Uh, so I, I, I do like her. However, I do think she's kind of a limited actress when it comes to playing real people. I didn't, I wasn't convinced by her in Seaburg. Um, I think it was, I think it was a real problem that she was kind of playing a better and more iconic actress. And I, I think maybe Seaburg is, is a little bit of a clue as to why so many of these actors and actresses are, so, uh, 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 are attracted to these kinds of projects, because it is a sort of way of dressing up in another era's glamour and, and using it to underline their own. I don't know. I mean, I think Lorraine will do something interesting because I mm. think he's, because he, like, for instance, what he did with Jackie was definitely, you know, Natalie Portman's uh, a very strong actress. But it's such a directed movie as well. It's so, you know, visually and, you know, you got Johnny Greenwood coming back to do the music again. Sorry, he did the music. He didn't do the music for Jackie because that was... No, it uh, was the Icelandic. What was her name? Micah. Micah. She met Levy. Yeah, wasn't it her? Yeah, it was. You're right. It was her. Well, I, I'm thinking of Johnny Greenwood. Oh, Paul Thomas Anderson, I'm thinking of. Right, yeah. right. But he's... Uh, but, but yeah... You, you, that music was so important to um, to Jackie that you can imagine Johnny Greenwood doing a, 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 a the score being very prominent for Spencer as well. And he's also doing that thing of he's only taking a couple of days. I think it's not yes. this isn't a biopic in the sense of uh, you know um, we see her at school and then meet. I mean, The Crown has already done that, mm. so it's going to be much more concentrated and and I would imagine intense. You know, about a, I think it's a weekend hunting in, you know, I'm not sure if it's in Balmoral or the Scottish Highlands or something, but yeah. if it is, the cinematic possibilities of that, that for a, a, a visual director like Lorraine are going to be manifold. If, if it's done well, this is the type of biopic that really appeals to me. He picked sort of a theme with Jackie. He had an idea and this was all focused around his death the image of Camelot and what that meant and, and sadness, but also to keeping appearances up and what, how she wanted the legacy of the family to be. And, and it was very concentrated to one idea. Talk about uh, Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. It's more of an idea of, of, you know, who this person was and a theme of what it means to be a woman in that, in a court, so to speak. And I'm sure he has this idea with Diana Spencer as well. Yeah, it can be it can be very impressionistic, can't it? It doesn't have to be like I think in a way doing that sort of concentrated idea is a way of freeing yourself from a lot of those cliches I was talking about. You don't mm. need to have everybody sort of meet people. I remember uh, was it the Willem Dafoe Vincent Van Gogh film that came out recently at Eternity's Gate, where he meets Oscar Isaac um, and they sort of have that 
thing where they go, Gan, how are you? Oh, you must be Van Gogh. And it's just like, oh, stop. You know, you know who is that chap in the corner? You know, it's, you know, it, it's just... It, you, you just grit your teeth and you, you know um yeah yeah that's like the same when they always had to start the movie when it was about a musician or something with that childhood flashback of oh you they lost their brother and that's the whole reason to why they made all this music afterwards and i mean that that's absolutely right the christopher nolan book i was reading it was really interesting how he was working on a film for ages about howard hughes and he was going to bring it out around about the same time that scorsese did the aviator and one of the things that he was absolutely sort of insisting on was i don't want to do a freudian childhood explanation for everything that you know i don't want to do the rosebud and i think that freud it's it's weird because freud has largely been completely got rid of in psychiatric circles but in Hollywood he's still you know alive and strong he's a zombie idea that won't die <laughs> that you know you have to show somebody you know uh you know Raymond Chandler said you know who's interested when I bought my first bicycle you know it's like but but for Hollywood producers it seems to be you know what happened to him as a child that made him you know and Martin Scorsese's aviator properly has that scene where his mum's giving him a bath and saying you must be clean Howard you must be clean (laughs) ah that's where it comes from the next movie we're going to talk about which is Blonde um, based on the book by Joyce Carol Oates um, directed by Andrew Dominic Anna Darmus plays Norma Jean Marilyn but it's more of an idea of celebrity and Hollywood and who she was and her life um, seen through these people as it is an actual biopic yeah I mean I was just looking in preparation for, for talking to you today I was looking at the cast list and I noticed that some of the cast instead of having characters names are called the playwright and the baseball player yeah exactly obviously George yeah yeah Michael. exactly Arthur Miller Joe DiMaggio I've read the book, which is a, a, a brilliant read, actually. Oh, so I really enjoyed it. it it's, it's a big brick of a book, but, but it, it really takes you inside her head. And um, I think Andrew Dominic, especially with um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, uh, he, really, he, he can really do that subjectivity and get you inside, you know, in that case, Casey Affleck's head. I, th- I think I can imagine him doing a very similar thing here. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. I think Dominic is a, a superb director. I've never seen a film of his I didn't like. Mm. Um, He's made few movies, but every single one is just a little masterpiece and should be seen by more people. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, well, Killing Them Softly, the Brad Pitt movie that he did, was I think was Brad Pitt's lowest ever um, flop. You know, it was... Uh, was was his absolute you know lowest point of his career in terms of uh, money coming in um i think this the i mean i don't think it's been a matter of choice i think uh, he blonde was set up years ago i mean like a decade at least uh, there was naomi i mean it, it's one of those uh, situations which happens a lot with biopics where the actors get too old to do them you know naomi watts was the first person then jessica chastain um, and obviously, if you're if you're going to have a, a certain sweep of a career, especially of a, a woman who dies at a certain point, you know, dies relatively young, um, then you know you need an actress uh, um, who's going to fit the age that you want to portray. 
um, so I don't think it was for want of trying. Uh, but at the same time, you get the feeling that also Dominic is probably quite a hard character to, uh, you know, quite a, quite a perfectionist. I get that feeling anyway from watching his films because they're, they're pretty perfect. So. Exactly. What do you think of Anna de Armas? I understand that she spent a year um, in vocal training to play Marilyn. Yeah, I, I'm not. I, I mean, I think she'll work. She, she's a good actress and I think she's done quite a lot of good work already for someone so young. Um, I think physically she doesn't stand out to me as looking anything like Marilyn Monroe. Um, but then again, that might that might just not be particularly important if they're not going for an impersonation. Um, yeah, I, it's, it, it's an interesting choice. It's an interesting choice. I think it's very interesting because in the book, Norma Jean is just such a different woman from what she becomes as the the Marilyn that we all owned, so to speak. Uh, absolutely. And this is, you know, I mean, it's become a bit of a cliche to, to, you know, say, you know, this is part of the Me Too movement or in the time of Me Too. It, it, but this really is, goes back to the roots of that kind of exploitation where you have the most powerful woman um, in Hollywood sort of reduced to a stereotype on so in so many ways by by her own I iconic status. Um, so, it, I mean, it is a really, it feels very contemporary to me as a subject. I can see if it if it lands correctly, I think I can see this being a very powerful piece of work. So those two movies, uh, both I think are pretty much done and coming out soon. Looking forward to those. Um, I just wanted to mention two others that are making their life stories, but they're holding on to them themselves. Madonna is both writing and directing her own life story. And Steven Spielberg is his next project is the story of his parents where Michelle Williams is going to play his mother. He has a very interesting background where, you know, he started making movies about absentee fathers until he realized that it wasn't my father that was absent. He was protecting his mother. And that's when he made War of the Worlds, where Tom Cruise is actually not an absent father. You know, if you think about E.T. I didn't know that. No, I didn't know anything about either of those uh, projects, actually. That's really interesting. These two pop iconic figures really are holding on to their own stories. Yeah, that sounds like, um, that sounds like a, the kind of end of career move that would be really interesting for someone like Spielberg, who, although a lot of his films have sort of autobiographical aspects, especially a film like E.T., they're always working in a genre space. So they're always, you know, I mean, E.T. is autobiographical because of its setting, but he meets an alien, so it can't be, you know, it can't be that um, true to life. So it's kind of interesting that maybe as a coder to, the, to his work, he'll actually sort of do a little flourish where he, he brings it back home, literally. I'm a bit worried about the Madonna movie as that she's directing it herself. <laughs> um, I love, yeah. I love, love Madonna, but um, it would have maybe been interesting to see a Pablo Lorraine or Sofia Coppola or anyone else direct it. Um, she may be a little bit too close to her own image. <laughs> I mean, she's directed a couple of films in the past, but I, I don't think they were particularly... Uh, good <laughs> to, 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 yeah right. yeah and yeah you you wonder about the amount of distance that she can have to her 
you know, to her own image, as you said. It's Diablo Cody that's writing it with her, and she's excellent. Oh. She wrote Juno. It'll be interesting who she casts and what she does with it. And, and... Oh, just just one, just because you mentioned the screenwriter. Um, the screenwriter of Spencer is Stephen Knight, who did um, Locke. And, oh, right. uh, and so also someone who is pretty good at, at um, that kind of intense relationship because you know Locke is all about a breakup mm-hmm. and it, and this uh, Spencer is all about the the day that she sort of decides that she's no longer going to be married to Prince Charles so it's uh, I, I think he's he's got he's got form as a very good screenwriter uh, they seem like capable hands now we're come to sort of the next uh, next edition of this pop cultural biopics that are coming. I'm calling this the cavalcade of stars. These are type of movies that like everyone's in them. And first we have The House of Gucci, which it seems like you guys that are living in Italy, there's so many pictures coming out of the filming of this movie that we've basically seen the entire movie already. Are are you guys like are the Italians going crazy over the filming of this there? Well, we, the weird thing is, I went to Venice uh, a few weeks ago, and there was actually some filming happening. Uh, you walk past a film crew that were working on something, which I think is the, an adaptation of the last Hemingway novel, Across the River Into the Trees, um, which is his worst novel. It's absolutely awful. So, But, but then again, you know, they make great films from bad books, so uh, maybe we're in, in for one. Uh, yeah, there have been a lot of photographs from the set of this uh, as you can expect in the country that actually invented paparazzi as a as a word and as a phenomenon um also lady gaga has a huge fan base adam driver has now become similarly a magnet for all kinds of media attention i think he's one of the highest profile actors of his generation you know you, if you i mean dicaprio and brad pitt and we're sort of George Clooney. We haven't. We've seen like, is they're all basically old geezers now, you know? Yeah, and George Clooney. Um, like he's in Venice all the. T- he's in Italy all the time. They're tired of him already, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he does Nespresso adverts and Midnight Sky, and we've had enough. And he's got a, a you know biblical beard as well. It's like uh, he's lost his he's he's lost that he's he's seeded that um, sort of hunky guy. Um, position but uh yeah but adam driver's definitely seems to you know adam driver pablo pascal i don't know why i'm telling you all this i don't think i, I don't think i'm the resident expert in, in hunks this film is is the story of um patricia reggiani she was the ex-wife of maurizio gucci and uh she plotted to kill her husband. Um, Lady Gaga plays her. Adam Driver is Maurizio Gucci. And then we have even more stars because Al Pacino is playing one of the patriarchs. Jared Leto's in it. And the director is Ridley Scott. Yeah, I mean, Scott has Ridley Scott has become an absolute machine in terms of making movies, considering that he's, you know, he, he's in a part of his career when most people are starting to slow down a bit. I, if... He's got two films that are coming out this year, which will mean that since 2012, he will have directed eight movies. In, so in the space of a little over nine years, he's had eight movies come out. Um, What's the other one he has this year? The Last 
Jewel. Oh, Jewel, right, with Ben Affleck, mm -hmm. written by him and, and Matt, Damon. Matt Damon, of course, together again, you know, <laughs> for uh, after that Kevin Smith film was the last time I think they were together. This, but this topic seems really uh, to suit Ridley Scott because he's such a a, a brilliant director of sort of 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 style over substance. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he, the you know his films are so full of uh, a really sort of luscious vision. You know, and he's and he's done Italy before. You know, he did Italy in All the Money in the World. There were, the best part of Hannibal was was set in Florence. Florence looked gorgeous with Anthony Hopkins strolling through. Because otherwise it's a shithole. I mean, uh, otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> no. But I mean, he polishes it up. Um, I mean, there are people who make movies of Italy and and you know don't don't get it. They just show you the cliche, or you know, or they or they do the opposite, like. You know Matteo Garone, the director of Pinocchio, and who who sort of is really good at showing an Italy that you don't usually see, you know, uh, especially in Gomorra. Um, but yeah, he he he's good at managing to to make you see Italy in a new way, but it but in a way that's quite beautiful as well. And yeah, you're right; it's not that hard, I guess. <laughs> <It's not. laughs> What do the Italians say? There are there people love Lady Gaga and all that, but are there anyone saying that? Wow, a bunch of Americans and Brits coming over to do this very Italian story with only Italians. Patricia is still alive; she got out of jail a few years ago. I mean, are there any any grumblings about that, or they just think it's fun? Oh, there there are bound to be. There are there are bound to be. I mean, none none that have crossed my path to tell you the truth, but there. There will be uh, there will be people talk, pointing out this and 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 I mean Abel Ferrara made a film about Pasolini a few years ago with Willem Dafoe mm -hmm. and there was a I, I talked to a lot of people and they were they were quite dismissive of of the film as sort of having quite a lot of sort of cliches of Italy but at the same time Italy's quite proud of its sort of soft power of its ability to have a much bigger impact on the world than than countries of a similar size i mean i think mm -hmm. italy looms in the in the imagination much more than i don't know france or germany maybe i mean in terms of the filmic imagination maybe not france because of the homegrown sort of nouveau vague and all that all that all that lot but um but it certainly likes to have its big impact. It doesn't like the pizza, pasta, mafia sort of reputation, but it does like uh, to see itself on screen. So I think it will be quite pleased to see Lady Gaga up there and Adam Driver, and they will, yeah, I think they'll be quite happy. And, and post-COVID, they'll also be quite happy for any tourists who decide to, you know, come Visit to- Visit that shithole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Visit this ghetto of villainy, <laughs> this hive of villainy and scum. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. But Ridley Scott has has done a few very interesting women, of course, both in Alien and Thelma and Louise, and 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 it'd be interesting to see what he does with Patricia, who's obviously a very ambiguous character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and Lady Gaga can act. Uh, I mean, we've seen that in A Star Is Born. She was great in that film. It was really, really impressive. Um, 
Uh, and I also, somebody showed me on Twitter that she was in the, uh, an episode of The Sopranos back when she was like a teenager, yeah. just a little clip of her in a crowd or something. Um, I look forward to a Ridley Scott movie. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, he reminds me a lot of the classical filmmakers. He reminds me a lot of Michael Curtiz, where he has a really... Oh, interesting. He has a, well, he does lots of, he's got a factory sort of industrial speed to him. He doesn't write his own stuff. He, he takes other people's projects and, and moves forward with them. And he has a, he really has sort of had an impact on sort of the film language uh, in a way that becomes so predominant that it then becomes invisible. But you sort of like, you don't think of Scott as having a specific sort of style, but it re he really kind of does. It's just that that style has almost become industry standard and state of the art. I, I mean, I'm, a I'm glad to see him as well sort of escaping from, from this strange mid midlife crisis of going back and redoing Alien, uh, you know, because I mean, Alien's perfect. Oh my God. I mean, that's, yeah, just perfect. Don't touch those, please. <laughs> yeah, his next, I've, I've read his next uh, biopic is Napoleon with Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, I, yeah, I've heard that as well. And I think that would have a, a really good sort of Kubrick feel to it because it's yeah. like, it's doing the one, and, and you know, The Duelists was very much in the Barry Lyndon territory and it's a Napoleonic film. So I would, I'd be, I'd be into seeing that. I would be yeah. into seeing that definitely. And he can definitely do epic. I mean, Kingdom of Heaven was a film that was very, uh, it was a brilliant film, which, which was just ruined by, by the central casting. You know, it was uh, Orlando Bloom is a, is a wonderful elf, but, but not, not, not a great actor, I'm afraid. So, um, and the film surrounding him is amazing. It's just such a pity that they couldn't they couldn't call Christopher Plummer at the last minute to come and do his role. Yeah. It's like when Liam Neeson dies in that film. It's like, please, no. But talk about let's not touch a good thing. And the next movie we're going to talk about that's coming is Barry Levinson's Francis and the Godfather, which is a movie about, well, all the crazy battles and the making of the 1972 classic the godfather oscar isaacs is playing francis coppola jake gyllenhaal is robert evans and elizabeth moss was just announced as eleanor coppola what are your thoughts here really this is a really strange one i think because um barry levinson is like 78 years old and francis ford coppola is 81 and so um, it's not like a really young guy has just discovered, you know, the world of Francis Ford Coppola of the 1970s. And I want to revisit that golden era. It's like they're basically contemporaries. Um, it, it's, it's a very strange. I mean, we've, we've got used to watching movies about movies um, and they definitely have a sort of awards. They, they often overrepresented it in award ceremonies and things. We've already had Mank uh, uh, in the last 12 months. Uh, we had Disaster Artists, so it doesn't even have to be a good movie for, for uh, you know, Hollywood to lionize the creator. Um, so it's, it feels like 
Citizen Kane walking, you know, Orson Welles walking into that Hall of Mirrors again and, and mm-hmm. getting that infinite regress. I, I've got nothing against the, the idea. The making of Godfather is an interesting story. I love reading the books about it. So, yeah, that's fine. Um, uh, it, and, I, and I like seeing films about films. So I, I've not got anything against against it per se, but it just strikes me as a very strange, you know, I mean, usually when people go into a period, it's because they weren't there and they want to explore something. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it seems odd that, is it Barry Levinson going back to his own sort of formative years? And uh... He was Good Morning Vietnam. He did Rain Man and Wag the Dog. Um... Yeah, 1982 Diner. I mean, he's he's done he's done a lot. I I don't see him going into sort of a Francis Ford Coppola Hearts of Darkness um, psychological exploration. I'm not sure, but it just this seems like one of the movies where they'll fill every uh, famous person with another famous person to tell the stories quite linearly. I could be completely wrong, and it could be excellent anyway. But that's my feeling of what it'll be. Yeah, I just, I, I, I don't know. I just, if I was 78 years old and I was a director, I mean, I guess I, I'd take any job I can get. I'm not, you know, I mean, the days of A-list directors commanding huge amounts of power are probably gone. But um, I just wonder if I'd want to make a film about another film director who made a film. You know, I, I might want to spend my last few films saying the last things I wanted to say. Um, I mean, Coppola apparently is is all in for the for the project, but that's probably because Oscar Isaac is playing him. And let's face it, he was not that <laughs> handsome a guy, you know. Again, going back to John Bleasdale's uh, "Who's a Hunk?" report. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you're giving us the whole thing here. No, yeah. but I mean, no, it, it's true. It's it's super interesting that they're go- maybe they have a pact, Levinson and Coppola's, like you know. Promise me that it's you that will do my life story. <laughs> Coppola should make Diner with like uh, I don't, Adam Driver playing Barry Levinson. Right. I mean, I think he's cultivated this image and I don't think he would sort of approve of this project unless that image was in some way, you know, and he likes the image of the combative, the guy who was going to be fired and because ultimately he triumphs, ultimately he wins. And, you know, fair play to him. He's made some great movies on a huge fan, um, but I again a little bit like the Madonna thing. I wonder how much they will they will want to, you know. I mean, it's it's Hollywood. They're not going to want to open it up too much. I don't think this is filming yet, so this is very early. But in 2020, um, Ben Affleck announced that he was directing um, the book called The Big Goodbye, Chinatown and the Last Years of Hollywood, which is similar to the previous one we talked about, a movie about the making of Chinatown. It's produced by SNL's Lorne Michaels. Robert Evans will most likely figure in this one as well. We don't know who's playing anyone. What do you think of this project? Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's a good year for for Robert Evans. I mean, it's a pity he, <laughs> he he died last October because he would have he would be absolutely loving this yeah. uh, reinvention. Um, although he did get to tell his own story with the kid stays in the picture, which is a brilliant, excellent, a brilliant read and a, a and a really funny documentary as well. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I've read Sam Wesson's book, and it's super. It's really, really good. And I, um, and I'm not sure how much of the book will necessarily go into the movie. But one of the things that it does very well is it is it gets rid of this idea of the auteurish screenwriter, the uh, Robert Town, uh, who writes Chinatown, is often cited as this sort of like single figure. And I didn't realize he had a guy, a pal, who he wrote with every day. And he was never in the room on his own writing it. It was always a collaboration. He 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 basically denied this. It's Mank 2, the sequel. Yeah, yeah. He kind of <laughs> got, got rid of the, the credit. Yeah, I mean, it could go that direction. That would be interesting. I think the Polanski stuff is going to be difficult, you know? I I, I don't see how they can not, not address it. And at the same time, you know, you've got, um, I mean, Polanski is just going to loom over this you know like Banquo at the feast <laughs> to use a Polanski movie mm-hmm. you know as a as a comparison yeah I think it's going to be um it's going to be tricky but I I I love the period I love the idea of the 60s recreating the 50s and you know um or, or the 40s it's earlier isn't it China? 40s but yeah right right so it's weird. It's like we're constantly walking, walking backwards and looking behind as we go because, uh, you know, that's what's interesting about Chinatown is it's this huge film of the new Hollywood and it's, it's incredibly nostalgic for the past. It's, it's really looking at the beginning of everything. Um, so, yeah, I, Affleck is... I would worry a little bit of all these movies. I would worry a little bit because I don't think Ben Affleck is a great director. I mean, I mean, he won for Argo, which was a bit, bit of a head scratcher. I think in retrospect, I don't think many people are watching Argo now. You know, I don't think it's survived in the conversation much. Um, his last film he directed was 2016 live by night, which was pretty, I, I, didn't think, I, I really liked the book, but I didn't like the film much at all. Um, so I'm a little bit, you know, Barry Levinson has has proven himself, and I can I don't think there's any disgrace in him doing Francis and the Godfather. But um, you know, this is a bit like when I saw uh, you know uh, James Franco doing the Disaster Artist. I think how dare you touch Tommy Wiseau? You know how <laughs> you aren't fit to kiss his feet. <laughs> You should make a film as good as The Room. I'm not sure. I I think that Ben Affleck could pull this off because I think if there's one world he knows, it's the world of of Hollywood and filmmaking. And um, it depends on what direction he goes with the script. I have a feeling, I don't think we've gotten that far with this film yet. So who knows if it even goes into production, considering everything with Polanski and, you know, who want to make this and, the, you know, all the things that Affleck has started that later don't go anywhere could be another director we hear about in half a year. So um, it, we're not really there. Yeah. Yet and, it, yeah and he has, a, he has sort of, he has his own demons, uh, as well in his personal life, so I think, I think it's it's uh, a wait, definitely a wait and see. Um, I mean, I I really like him as an actor. Actually, I like his I liked his Batman. <laughs> oh, I, did too. I thought he was really, I thought he was really good in Goodwill Hunting. He has he has something. It's that strange meme, the sad Affleck thing. 
that he that he actually brings that into movies that you automatically kind of feel sorry for him. Is this he's this sort of has this sort of classical Hollywood glamour, but at the same time you sort of think, oh man, I want to put your my arm around him for some reason. That's so interesting because I just did a thing of him of him here on TV, and that was exactly my thesis on him that he's both the a-list star the tabloid affleck everything but he's also just the every guy who wants to have a beer with matt damon and has all these personal demons and back tattoos and and you know everything and you just and you like him because of that the, your, your next phd thesis will be uh, the back tattoos of ben affleck yes. <laughs> Backman. But I mean, so we'll see what happens with this movie. But I, it may be just a coincidence. But do you have any thoughts on why there are so many movies coming up that sort of deal with these huge pop cultural figures and iconic movies and things like that? Yeah, I think there are two main reasons. I mean, I think one, if we look at it on an individual level of sort of ben, why would Ben Affleck want to make a film about Chinatown? Or why does Barry Levinson want? I mean, there's the old Harold Bloom idea of the anxiety of influence, which is any artist wants to kill their father figure to go back to that Freudian um, <laughs> thing that we talked about earlier. So, you know, you you Ridley Scott makes Napoleon to, to sort of dance on Kubrick's grave and say, I've, I've done it, I've overcome you, in a way that's it's respectful. It's respectful dancing on the grave. It's not, you know, uh, hostile. Um, and, you know, Ben Affleck wants to do Chinatown so because he says, look, I'm your peer. I'm as good as you are. Um, so I think from a personal level, there is that sense of if I can play an icon, then I am an icon. You know, I'm as good as or better than an icon. Kristen Stewart playing Seaberg uh, would be a, a prime example of that, where she wants to talk in interviews about how how she feels very similar to, to Gene Seberg. Um, so I think that's that's one reason in terms of that area. On a more broader sort of cultural or, you know, the industry itself, I think the industry is at a real crossroads and it's having a real crisis of confidence. And so lurching to the past and and looking at times when they made real movies becomes like almost like, okay, let's go back and find out how they did that and why they did that. And let's try to bring a bit of that romance back. Um, I mean, that was my problem with Mank is you had uh, David Fincher going back and using, you know, a lot doing a lot of press about how he was using black and white and they were doing certain things digitally to make this analog feel to the film. But when you watch the film, it's on Netflix. It's not at the cinema. There's not the flickering light in the room. And it's digital. So that black and white has none of the contrast or the sharpness of the photography that we love from that era. Um, it's, it's just all sort of washed out and bland. Um, and and a, a key scene in that movie was when Mank and the other writers sort of tried to talk around the studio heads and swapping a, a story around. And you were just thinking... This is has nothing like the screwball sharpness of the dialogue that these guys actually wrote. It's it's just not. It, it's it's like really um, intellectual fan fiction. It's just not got there. It's not got the that 
original spark. So, I mean, I think those are the two reasons. On a personal level, I want to compete with my forebears and bring them down a little bit and me up. And on the industry level, you know, let, let's go back to when they made movies about stuff rather than about comic books. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I quite like comic book movies. I've not got anything against them, but there is a, there is at the moment uh, a real lack of, of cinema that's just aimed at uh, adults and aimed at um, telling stories in the real world. So this is a way of doing both those things. I'd like to add that I think that it's become very popular and interesting for sort of art house directors to actually look into just real commercial pop cultural and look at it um, with a deeper eye. And so someone like Lorraine looking at Diana Spencer and, and just trying to figure out the tabloid, what's behind the tabloids and find something bigger in that. And, and I think there's an interest in taking pop culture seriously and I think the one who did it brilliantly is Joyce Carol Oates with Blonde when she wrote the book and actually looked behind that and, and took figures that people didn't, what, we can write big literature about these type of things, really? And that's why it's taken so many years to get someone like Dominic and really do this. Oh, absolutely. And of all the films, that's the one I'm mm. looking forward to the most, I think. I, and Lorraine Spencer, definitely. Um, I think you have to approach these things with a sense of, uh, I'm going to bring something different. I mean, you know, it's the opposite of Bohemian Rhapsody, yeah. where you're just giving the you're just giving the greatest hits. You know, you you put on the greatest hits of Queen, and you and you flick through the, a pictorial biography, and and at the end, you know less about the subject than you did at the beginning. You know, um, and hopefully, the Marilyn Monroe film, Blonde and and Spencer, will will give us a sense of of looking at those figures in a new way. I think that's valuable. Uh, I think she, I think he did that with Jackie. You know, I definitely looked at Jackie in a totally different way. Um, and I listened to the song Camelot a little bit too often <laughs> in that film as well. <laughs> Finally, just do you have any personal picks in this sort of unusual biopic genre that we've been talking about? Um, okay, I, I, the first one, I, I, I picked a couple. And I think there's, um, this might be cheating a little bit, but you sort of mentioned it earlier when you were talking about a musical biopic where the child gets injured. So uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox yeah, story. The comedy. I think is the best musical. Yeah, it's a parody of musical biopics. And I just think it it is amazing because it's not just a hilarious comedy, which it is. I would watch that any day of the week. But it's also a kind of essay and a takedown of every single cliche that you can think of. I'm surprised they're still making musical biopics afterwards, <laughs> which still have those Dewey Cox moments, you know? Don't you know Dewey Cox has to think about his whole life before every performance, you know? <laughs> and, and the inevitable drug period where everything goes in. <laughs> no, I agree. That's a good one. The wrong child died. <laughs> It's so. I mean, that's that's a proof that someone can understand the, the genre so well that they can completely uh, overdo it. And then I, I I would go back to like it, one of my favorite films uh, is Lawrence of Arabia, and I know that 
you, you know, you could argue that, oh, that's a political art, a military war film art. But it is really about pop iconography. The, the guy dresses up. He, he subsumes himself in a totally different culture. He, he, and he, he's vain. He knows that. And I'm really interested in the way um, he becomes less of a human being the more of an icon he becomes. He dehumanizes himself in order to sort of project himself in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. I mean, it's something which... We, Mel Gibson's Braveheart did to a lesser mm -hmm. extent, but I find that really fascinating. You know, I mean, the very beginning of that film is someone coming down the steps of his funeral and saying, you know, that guy was a complete loser um, and sort of, de uh, oh no, no, celebrating him. And then the, the guy who knew him saying, oh, you didn't really know him at all. Um, so I really, I really do love those, uh, that sort of thing. And then another one, and, and Again, this is maybe slightly too old or, or too, but Salvatore Giuliano, the uh, Francesco Rossi uh, film, is um, about a Sicilian bandit, basically. And I just like the way that it looks. It doesn't have, he's not really in the film. It's like everything around him. You never really have, you never, you, it, it's, it's the icon that you're watching from all these different angles. And I, I find that interesting as well. Um, um, I want to mention all that jazz. I think all that jazz is such an interesting um, movie in this type of, of going into someone's brain and in a very chaotic part of their life. It just also embodies visuals, the dancing, the music. I think that's a particularly interesting movie in this genre, as well as The Social Network. Oh, absolutely. No, I totally agree with you. Um, I, that's, that's one of Fincher's best movies, I think. And I think what he does that's really interesting in that film is it's a little bit like Lawrence of Arabia, where you feel you're quite close to the character at the beginning. And the, the, it's like he's slowly pulling away from the character. So you know him less and less mm -hmm. and less uh, by the end of it. Uh, I mean, I think the ending is probably a little bit of a a cop-out that he's sort of still a human being. He still wants to, you know, uh, wants to be liked by his old girlfriend. But, um, but yeah, no, I like the, I love the way that you, you're not allowed in, okay, you know, right. this is a person who doesn't let you in and he's supposed to be this, the social network, but he's the least social person you can ever imagine. Making the character your own as a filmmaker. Um, and of course, I understand that there's a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't allow you to do that, especially if you have family members who are taking control of this, or you have um, Queen who wants their music in, um, that it's very difficult to get to be able to do that type of thing. But when it's done well, it's the most interesting type. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there are people who've made good, good, biopics but I always find I, I, musical biopics I mean uh, I always feel that it's like well um, Todd Haynes's uh, uh, Bob Dylan one um, is it I'm not there Kate Blanchett plays uh, yeah there's Christian Bale Heath Ledger they it's almost like a collection of film essays in which you have all these different things and you sort of get a mosaic of who this icon might be so you have the androgynous version with Kate Blanchett you have the mole macho version uh, and a hobo version with Richard Gere um, so I, I do like it when it's more problematized and more 
you know, imaginative, I guess. Uh, have you seen the the David Bowie one that came out recently, Starman or Stardust? I mm. Because they didn't get the licensing for right, music, no and that also becomes a thing. Yeah. So they can't use any of the songs, and they. I mean, at that point, I would. No, there's no point. I would probably say, as a filmmaker, I don't think I'll make the movie no. then. You know, unless you're going to do something very radical, like you know, a Jim Jarmusch movie, where you're just all the things that happen in between drama. Exactly. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there have been a few. There, there was a Morrissey biopic recently, which, again, they didn't get the licensing from the music. So that that is an expensive thing. If you don't have Queen as your executive producer or Elton John as your executive producer, then you, you're going to spend so much money just getting the music that it almost becomes a non-starter. Um, Lastly mentioned, of course, the sort of big one from is, is Amadeus not just as a biopic, but, but the thing that's more striking to so many of us, I think about that is that is the Salieri Amadeus, the jealousy aspect that someone out there gets all the talent, you work much harder than the other person and they still get everything. Just an, also an interesting take instead of just being a straightforward biopic. And then that movie is just amazing in every way, you know, Foreman. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he, he, um, I mean, that's uh, is it Peter Schaefer wrote the play uh, before they made it into the film, and I think that I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a sort of thesis film where that it's not really interested in the real Mozart because the real Mozart worked really hard yeah. and had a childhood where he was absolutely dominated by his father and trained to do what he did. He wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, he was very talented, but it was, well, you see you know, bits of that, of course. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But he definitely put in a lot more work than the, the film seems to suggest. He just, you know, naturally just c comes out of him like that. Um, but he certainly was, yeah, a brilliant improvisational musician as well. Uh, yeah, that's a superb film. And F. Murray Abrams, superb in it. Uh, and the music's wonderful. Milos Forman's direction's amazing. No, that's, yeah, I, I, that's that's one that I would put on the top of my list as well. That's definitely in my top ten in in all genres. So it can be done. <laughs> it can be done. <laughs> John, this was so interesting. Thank you so much for joining me again. We sort of winged it here with all kinds of theories and interesting things, but it was it was always so fun to talk to you. Oh, it's brilliant, Christina. I really enjoyed it. And now I've got to. And now I have to go and see. Um, all that jazz, which I've never seen. Oh, you have to. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. John, thank you so much. Thank you, Christina. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but, you know. <laughs> We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. <laughs> Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. <laughs> Avoid <laughs> elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. Yeah, tag. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green.